Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Alexis Martinez. Dr. Martinez comes to us from Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And uh, down at Nova Southeastern, she serves as the Associate Dean for Student Development. Welcome, Alexis. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you today. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because I understand you work a ton with professional programs, programs that have academic certifications or they might be medical, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And we'll talk a lot today about the intersection of professional codes and graduate students with our codes of conduct. But before we dig into all of that, I was hoping you could just tell us how you got where you are. Sure. So I think I probably have a little bit of an untraditional path into what's considered more traditional student affairs. I um, I went to law school and figured out that it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and um, was really fortunate to meet a great mentor along the way that really helped me figure out that I wanted to do student affairs actually at the graduate level. Um, so went back and got my master's in higher ed and worked in student affairs in the legal setting, so in in law schools, for about 10 years, um, and then wanted to look um, into opportunities to expand my role um, and what I was doing, um, looking for maybe a little bit of a different professional path. And so about almost a year and a half ago, um, this position became available, um, and it's a unique position in that it's a unique university with 80% graduate students and 20% undergrad, and so it really leveraged my ability to um, work with professional students and programs um, as well as get the undergraduate experience, and so I am the chief conduct officer for the entire university, but it also means that I create and draft the expectations, um, both behavioral and in conduct, for all of our students at the university. And so a little bit of, of a non-traditional path to get to a place where I work with all students across the university. Excellent. So are you one of those rare individuals that is both JD and PhD? JD, EDD. Um, but yes, I, I, although I'm seeing it more and more, um, yeah, I think I think we're we're a rare breed. Definitely. Sometimes, you know, I've seen a couple of individuals do them concurrently or like yourself when they go one after the other. It's just I always am very I admire your tenaciousness and your persistence <laughs> in getting through both of those. I'm in like six year six or year seven now of my doctoral program. And I just, you know, there's a hundred million things that we'd rather be doing on any given day than writing. So absolutely, I just very absolutely much <laughs> you do both. Uh, well, Alexis, uh, you talked about you know wanting specifically to work with graduate students. So, what was your driver for working with graduate student affairs? So, when I was in law school, um, I went to law school where I went to undergrad, actually, and it's one of those amazing things that happens that you kind of get pulled back uh, to the organizations that you were either a part of or that you were associated with to help as kind of an unofficial graduate advisor. And um, the more I saw things uh, that were going on in the undergrad world, I 
at that time um, and at the age that I was, I thought I needed a little bit of a separation from that. And so I really liked the conversations that I had with peers in the graduate setting. And I also saw a huge gap in terms of the services that were provided to graduate students. There was kind of this assumption of you made it here, so therefore you should know and um, have all of the skills and um, support that you need to get through. And so I really wanted to be part of a change in the mindset that just because you got into graduate school at whatever level, whether it was a master's or a law school or or any other professional school, that you had it all together and that you didn't need support. Um, I feel like students at at any phase in your academic career, there's going to be something that happens and you need support in some way, shape, or form. And so I really wanted to be part of that change that provided more um, to graduate students. And so um, that's what was kind of the the driving force for me in terms of taking a lot of programs, initiatives, and and things that had been started for undergraduate students and adopt them to not necessarily the adult learner, um, because that's not always who's going into grad school. Sometimes they're the ones going back into school, but, you know, that there's still a lot of developing that's happening for 21 to 24-year-olds. And that's who we were seeing going into grad school more and more. And so I wanted to take a lot of those programs, initiatives, theories, and really apply them to professional schools to see if we could help really develop more the graduate student and get them either practice ready or um, ready for for whatever chosen profession in a way to ease the transition. I like how you frame that in terms of, you know, we make the assumption that grad students already have what they need in higher ed, but a lot of times our graduate students didn't go to our institutions as undergrads, or the institutions they did go to were markedly different in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. So I think we have that same struggle with transfers in, in, to some degree. Absolutely. And so what you're doing, I think, is, is applicable across the board for sure. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about what types of professional programs are at NOVA? Sure. So, um, as mentioned, it's a it's a eighty twenty population with eighty percent being graduate, which is very different from the traditional research institution. Mm-hmm. Um, we have what's considered our health professions division, which is seven graduate schools combined under that health professions division for graduate health education. So we have a school of optometry, a school of dental medicine a school of osteopathic medicine. Um, we have our nursing school. We have our health, um, our healthcare sciences. So that's where our PT, our OT, so physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, those programs come out of. Um, then we also have program, graduate programs in psychology, our master's and our graduate programs in the sciences. Um, so out of our uh, college of I believe it's biological sciences, as well as our graduate programs out of our arts, humanities, and social sciences. So we have we have a wide variety. In addition, we also have a law school on site. All right. And this was not meant to be like an ad for yeah, those exactly. of you who are looking for grad <laughs> programs. But what I did want our listeners to understand is the breadth of professional programs that mm-hmm. you're working with, because... 
uh, I worked at a, a campus with health sciences for quite a while as well. And the one thing that I learned was that each health science believes itself to be inherently different than every other health absolutely. science. Absolutely. No, you, you absolutely hit the nail <laughs> on the head. And, and while normally I've been at institutions that have graduate programs, one, to have one that's so heavy into the health sciences, they're very distinct. They absolutely believe that their professional standards are unique um, and that they have a lot of standalone needs and that they are the most well-equipped to address uh, student issues based on their educational program. And so trying to do that with 14 distinct colleges gets tricky um, and burdensome, but um, it's it's definitely one that it's, like you mentioned, it's it's an interesting one to navigate. Well, and in addition to that, you know, one of the, the places I've always struggled is the intersection of where our student codes of conduct begin and pre-professional programs, um, codes of conduct mm-hmm. end uh, and vice versa, uh, or do they run concurrently or how do professional standards fit in, et cetera. So again, for our listeners, a lot of our professional programs have professional standards within their actual mm-hmm. fields. So for example, in dentistry, there are you know a list of professional ethics that are assumed by dentists, um, or you might be familiar with doctor's philosophy of mm-hmm. do no harm. But all of those things are not necessarily covered by our student codes of conduct, or they might be covered better by our student Mm -hmm. codes of conduct. And so, Alexis, I imagine you spend a lot of time with academic deans and professors trying to figure out how these all work together. Absolutely. Um, So how does this work for you? (laughs) No, absolutely. I think one of the first things I had to do um, when when I got to the institution was really sitting down with each of either the deans, deans and their academic dean, you know, combinations of administrators at each of the colleges, introduce myself, introduce my background, talk to them about how the relationship had been in the past, um, because I had been replacing somebody who had been at the institution for quite some time, um, kind of where I was coming from in terms of my beliefs um, and how I, you know, was envisioning working together as well as what their expectations were. And and there was definitely some moments where there were agreements and, and then there was the, the tougher part of, well, we actually think that that's within our purview and really talking through what that looked like. And I think the great part about having those conversations so early on is that we have wonderful working relationships now. And and you're absolutely right. There are definite crossovers between professional expectations. And I think to a large part, we want that. Um, We want there to be a reinforcement of expectations as it relates to our students. Um, But then also knowing that there's going to be some additional requirements for our professional students as they move forward to licensure and an actual profession once they graduate from the institution. And so it was really starting with kind of creating that personal relationship, having them understand what I do, why I do it, or what I thought I was going to do, um, especially since it was so early on, um, and building that rapport of trust so that when things happened, um, because they always will, it's very easy to pick up the phone and say, okay, this just happened. 
and I need to let you know um, because it could impact their status as a professional student, and this is how we're going to move forward with it. And if it was something that wasn't exactly covered under the code, say, it's not covered under the code, but these are my concerns. And so then talking through where the professionalism um, code or, or their core standards or however any particular program described the expectations would then take into effect. You made an interesting point earlier about mm-hmm. licensure. And I think that's something that we don't, you know, we obviously don't think about that at the undergraduate mm-hmm. level, but sometimes student behaviors that we may think of as perhaps egregious yet still not uncommon may actually impact a professional student's ability to get licensed in their professional Absolutely. field. So, for example, uh, if there's a fist fight mm-hmm. on campus or mm-hmm. something like that, and if that becomes a citation for assault, that could prevent someone from becoming licensed. So how do you manage that balance? I kind of revert back to my previous experience on the other side, as I like to call it. So um, I was, you know, dean of students at two different law schools. And at the last institution that I was at, the agreement had been that conduct would be adjudicated by the centralized student conduct office that as a law school, we would only handle um, academic integrity issues. But what was happening as a result of that, quite frankly, was that the conduct office wasn't telling us when students were going through the process and weren't telling us outcome letters. And so we actually got into a tricky situation with a a, a board of law examiners for for a specific jurisdiction um, who said, you know, you certified a student and said that there were no conduct issues, but the student actually released and said that they had a conduct violation and it wasn't in our records, obviously in university records, but not within the law school. And so that was another relationship that I had to develop and say, okay, you know, we get it. You're doing the adjudication piece, but you need to let us know because we do have this requirement to certify each of our students to either sit for the bar exam or to get licensed. And once it was explained why we were requesting that information, it was a very easy, of course, we will copy you on all determination letters. And I think it's really having that open dialogue of what you need and why so that you can establish the relationships. And so when I got to this particular institution, one of the first things that I guaranteed each of the professional programs was you will be copied on all charge letters especially those that were licensing or that had licensing requirements. I said, you're going to be copied on all charge, charge letters as well as all on, on all outcome letters. It's written into the code that any graduate student, their dean will be notified of charges. And it's also discussed with each graduate student that goes through our process um, because it was never about kind of hiding that information. I like to be upfront with graduate students that this could impact what they came to school to do um, or to be. I think that's that's really important. And I also tell them that there might be a follow-up from their graduate program, that one is not exclusive of the other depending on the circumstances and what they're they're charged with. Um, So I think it just starts with that open dialogue of what you need and why um, as a graduate school. And then on the conduct side, being open and receptive to understanding what those additional kind of heightened obligations are 
of that professional school. So it sounds like you're running a lot of concurrent things then. So if I have a, if I'm a grad student at Nova and I have, uh, and and I allegedly punch Mm -hmm. somebody in the face and I'm, let's say a medical student, I would go through the central conduct process with you, but I would also then likely go before some sort of panel of faculty or deans in the med school. I'll be honest that we've been fortunate so far and that hasn't happened because again, I go back to that relationship that's been established and, um, the graduate students that I that have gone through the conduct process, I think the graduate program has respected the process as well as the outcome, um, so they haven't done any additional follow up. I just like to tell students that it's possible. But yeah, no, we've we've actually been we and and thankfully I think the students too have been fortunate that it's only been a a, a one situation, not a not a double jeopardy kind of thing. Definitely. Well, I think that the area of your expertise is one that, you know, strong practices and kind of best practices for the field haven't really been established as clearly as they have at the undergraduate level. So what would you say is kind of the most functional model for working with professional students? I wish I had a kind of one-size-fits-all answer for that. Um, I really do. I mean, the, the expectation is that um, they adhere to the same code of conduct um, and the same process. So in that respect, it's the same model. I think that the change comes with how you interact with the different graduate programs. Sure. I think the you know the the code is the code, the same with all students. I think the only exception that we make for graduate students is that we notify their academic dean, um, or excuse me, their their dean. And then it's the working relationship with the with the program. But I don't think that there's any difference, or I like to believe that there isn't any difference in how we hold students to the same expectations and even the same sanctions, both for, for undergrad and graduate students in a lot of ways. So what advice would you give to student conduct officers who are kind of in that forging stage of trying to figure out how to work with the professional programs on their campuses? So I think it starts with picking up the phone and introducing. Talk a little bit, you know, just just kind of get to know the people within that academic unit and talk about kind of universal expectations for all students. I've actually found... Uh, even with how we started the conversation about um, some professional programs feeling that they are the best fit, the interesting part is there's so many things that they are actually really uncomfortable with adjudicating or having to review. And a lot of it is because they are mindful of their students' whole kind of lives being reviewed, right? Both academic and, and personal decisions being reviewed by the same people. And so there's times that they really appreciate and want that outside perspective on how to handle something. You know, in so many ways, we are process experts and and conduct experts. And so that's not exactly their expertise, although administrators maybe in the law school setting will believe that they might know more um, as it relates to that. But um, in my experience, they love talking to individuals that really know their 
information, um, our content experts, and can talk through some challenges that they might be experiencing and then coming from the place of, well, you know, we could help with that or this is how I see this being a benefit to you as an administrator, um, I've found has always been extremely helpful and a conversation that usually then ends up with several follow-up, either phone calls or emails to say, we talked about this. What do you think about that? Right? So one conversation kind of leads to another. And so it's amazing how just picking up the phone and, and starting with, I'd love to get to know how you adjudicate this process or how you guys are handling this within your unit and how we can collaborate goes a a long way to really establish a longer term relationship that could ultimately lead to a universal code and a universal universal conduct process. Definitely. So I want to kind of loop back for a second, because you mentioned thinking about the sanctions almost being, you know, consistent with what we would see at the undergraduate level. But I want to specifically ask about those cases where the sanction at the undergraduate level might be a deferred suspension and an educational outcome, uh, or Mm -hmm. even a probationary period, and the student would be allowed to return. But under that same circumstance at the graduate level, it may completely dismiss their ability to become Mm -hmm. licensed in that field. How do you balance that that consistency, but also this idea that if you continue and you continue to spend money at our institution, your end goal is not likely to be met. That's where, and and it's interesting that you mentioned that because we actually just had that situation about a week and a half ago where I had to suspend an individual who was in our doctoral psychology program. And um, that person was in the process of applying to their international, or I think it's their international practicum requirement. It's now international because they can be placed in, in multiple locations across the globe. And quite frankly, I think that's where the relationship with the academic unit is so important because so much of graduate and professional academic advising comes from within the program. And the last thing they want is to be caught off guard when they're telling a student you have to apply for this or you have to do this in order to graduate and then the student comes in and says, well, somebody else, somewhere else at the institution just sent me this or just told me about this. And so bringing the academic unit into the loop was absolutely vital because, quite frankly, they also let me know of some important timelines that were coming up for the student and I incorporated it into my notification letter. That, that was one of the changes. Not that it changed our timeline, but it reminded the student that I know something's coming up for you and this could impact your ability to move forward. The student has been suspended. It's, uh, my understanding is it's, it's been upheld to this point. And the academic unit has been working with the student on, okay, you're, you know, you're, you're out for this amount of time. Um, and when you come back, this is what it's going to look like. And you're going to really have to do some thinking about how you either going to how you're going to pursue this profession or how you're going to explain the circumstances around your educational interruption. And so I think in good ways it's a good combination because there's the conversation about how behavioral standards and behavioral expectations weren't met on the university side 
but it's one that the academic unit absolutely understood and helped address kind of the the follow-ups, which is what happens now to, you know, my long-term both goals and academic expectations. That sounds like, uh, you know, (laughs) the recipe that we always prescribe in higher education in general, which is, you know, to say that it's different, but it's also not different. Um, That the key to a successful conduct program at any level is really having those established good relationships with our academic partners um, or stakeholders across campus. It's all about making those connections so that we talk through. And and I do like to think about the long-term impacts of our conduct decisions with all students, but knowing that usually for our graduate students, it is much higher stakes. And as you mentioned, you know, there's loans, there's additional financial debt that they went into um, past their four-year degree. And so what does all that do? And while it doesn't change my decision, it does impact what I try to connect the student to longer term so that they feel like there's still a place for them if it's, if it's one that they can return to or what their other options are if it's a permanent separation. So thinking about your journey into conduct being kind of more non-traditional than even some of us who, you know, I like to joke that nobody grew up saying, I want to be a student affairs professional. And it sounds like that was also your journey. But a lot of us who become student conduct professionals really don't even think about that graduate professional lens as an option. So for listeners who are kind of still exploring their career paths a bit more, what advice would you give them in terms of building a knowledge base that is most effective when lurking, looking for a job at that more graduate professional role? You know, I, I feel like so many of us now are going to, to graduate school in some way, shape, or form, whether it's master's or even going on to a PhD. And so really first drawing on your own experiences and getting to know as many students kind of in the graduate professions as possible, I think is, is really, really important. But then also connect with your grad students. Um, so many of us in our, our work in student affairs are working with our higher graduate assistants. Talk to them about what their experience is, not just from kind of the academic knowledge base, but that's a way to really get to know what are the expectations that are being, that are being talked about? What is their experience as a, as a graduate student at your institution? And then it's, again, connecting with other professionals. You know, if a if an advanced degree is something that's appropriate or not, that's a that's a kind of individual decision. Knowing that I'm that oddball that that kind of kept on going for my own special reasons, but knowing that there's still ways to get that content and that expertise in working with graduate students, even if you didn't exactly go through the same program. You know, I still find ways to connect with administrators and staff members as well as students that are in health professions full well knowing that I was never going to have that experience, nor would I ever want to have that experience. Um, But there's still ways to learn about what that experience is for an individual just by sitting down and, and getting to know the graduate students that are in that program. Have them explain kind of what they're going through, what they maybe not like and don't like, but what their experience is, what their expectations are, what they think the institution's expectations are, and then getting more of a well-rounded experience or, or knowledge base of the programs at your institution. Because I've also found that 
having worked at multiple institutions, while there's some commonalities, even in professional programs, the experience is never the same. The wording and the expectations is never the same. So really getting an idea of what that program looks like at your school is, is extremely important. And I think a lot of it starts with having the conversations and then, you know, the books, the blogs, the, the conferences are always great as well. Um, I know that NASPA has some communities, uh, especially related to graduate education and working with graduate students, as well as some other professionalism or professional um, associations that try to specifically create communities around working with graduate populations. Well, you know, coincidentally, we just did Mm -hmm. a survey in the last, I think, three months to see what the education Mm -hmm. levels of our ASCA members are. And I believe it was something close to 93% of responses uh, Mm -hmm. included a graduate or professional degree. So we're we're a highly educated field, which also means that we were all grad students at some point in time. But I also think that we maybe forget to draw on our own experiences as master's level students uh, when we're talking about working with uh, students who are earning other types of degrees. Though it's also, you know, our master's programs in higher ed, traditional higher ed, also include campus-based practicum experiences often. But I I would venture a guess that our student affairs master's programs uh, are not often reflected upon as being a grad student, more just being an administrator in training. Um, You know, Yes. Um, in, in many programs, that's probably how we saw it while we were going through it. But it's a great connection point or, or conversation starter, right? When, when we have other graduate students that we're now working with to say, oh, when I was in grad school, this is what it was like. Um, and just kind of changing how it's framed or the lens by which we're seeing it. And then there's, again, there's this connection that could happen to start a much deeper and longer conversation with a grad student in a different program. I hear a lot from graduate and professional programs, this kind of misconception that because our students are adults, because they have been to college before, that they know how to behave, they know exactly how to navigate, and of course, nothing bad will ever happen between them. I, th- I really do want to believe that, that that mentality is changing. I think, yes, there is definitely there are definitely those in the in in graduate or professional education that absolutely believe um, our students are adults. They you know they should and need to be able to be resourceful um, and need to take care of things on their own, and nothing ever bad will happen. And to those individuals, I always say, all of our students are adults, right? I mean, the minute. An 18-year-old walks in the door mm-hmm. um, at the university. They are an adult, um, and that's the way society sees them. But the reality is a good practice is to be prepared when things don't go as expected. And we could absolutely hope um, and expect that there will always be professional and proper either behavior, conduct, conversations, all of that. But we also have to be realistic and know that that's not always going to happen. Um, and so that, that's usually mm-hmm. one of the conversations that I, that I have to have is, you know, yeah, I, ideally, all of us, all of our students do all of the right things. But here's my card. Should you have a challenge that maybe you don't know exactly what to do 
when a student reacts or conducts themselves in a way that you're not familiar with. And it's amazing how usually within two weeks, I get a phone call from that individual that says, well, you're not going to believe what just happened. And um, I was like, oh, tell me more. And so it's, it's agreeing with that individual and saying, yes, I mean, we, we want all of our students. I mean, I don't know of anyone who is kind of cheering and hoping that our students don't meet the conduct and standard expectations that we have. I think some of us may just have a little bit more experience with seeing some of the mistakes um, or bad choices that our students make. And so, you know, I, I recently had a conversation actually with a faculty member who worked with undergrads and told me, well, this never happens. And I was like, okay, sir. Um, you know, and he said, you know, within my 30 years, I've never had this happen. And I said, okay, well, congratulations. Uh, that's wonderful. And um, I know several faculty members who are very jealous that you've gone 30 years without this happening. Um, but now that we're in this situation, let's kind of work through it and make sure that you're better prepared for it to happen in the future. Um, so I think we see it actually on all levels that there's faculty that will, faculty or administrators that will engage in students in, with, you know, in different ways and, and don't get to see different sides of our students that maybe we do. Um, and it's just letting them know sometimes that, you know, should something happen, we might be the rainy day option. And they remember that conversation. They really do. And when they get stuck in a situation, then you get the phone call. And when you're in a position to tell them about process and resources and um, kind of university protocol, they then start seeing you as that content expert that you are. And again, that's where the relationship builds. So as things happen in the future, um, but no, it's 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 not uncommon. And and yes, I know that across the board, we all want to believe that nothing ever happens or nothing will happen. But if that's true, over three thousand conduct officers will be out of a job. Well, and I was going to say, we also all know that several of our rules um, or policies were created because we didn't think something was going to happen and then it did. Um, Definitely. And so then we had to remind individuals about what that inappropriate either behavior or conduct um, or expectation was and, and put everyone on notice about it. And so I don't see us being out of jobs anytime soon. I think if nothing else, I think there will be more of us in this field as, you know, students change their behaviors and, and more students actually, go into graduate schools um, and there have to be a lot of the same conversations with graduate and professional students. Are there any trends that you're seeing right now amongst the populations you work with in terms of um, behavior or uh, kind of the way that students are approaching problems or communicating? I think the, I think one of the, the trends that continues, quite frankly, it's, it's a couple of things. The, the inability um, to handle conflict in a mature way um, I think that's as politically correct as, as way as I can say it. I think it's one that very much continues into graduate school. We're seeing that um, students younger and younger um, by kind of traditional or our average age in graduate schools, is the, the average age has been going down somewhat in different professional programs. And so with that, a lot of the conduct or inability to handle conflict and difference um, carries over to the graduate setting, which I think is one of the most frustrating points 
for graduate and professional administrators. I think there's this expectation, again, that because they're in graduate school, they're automatically um, or miraculously going to know how to behave. And one of the points that I like to make is that there's no difference whatsoever between the 21 to 22-year-old senior that just walked across the stage in May or June and the 21 and 22-year-old that just walked into the door in graduate school in August. There's nothing miraculous that happened over the summer. And so kind of transitioning that student to understand what the professional conduct piece is, I think is, is somewhat of a challenge when a lot of the behaviors are really becoming prevalent in the undergrad population. I think we're seeing a lot more of self-medicating and whether that is through ADD and ADH medication that is prescribed to others, um, but they feel like they need that for um, performance enhancement um, and and perceived academic rigor, um, as well as then once they're up, they need something to come down. Um, So we're seeing a lot more alcohol use um, or or abuse, I should say, as well as marijuana and or other drugs. Um, And so those are things that I think are being seen a lot more than they were in the past. Um, And those are concerning points not just for professional programs, but then moving forward into the professions. Certainly. I read a study recently about a misunderstanding or misuse Mm -hmm. of prescription drugs Mm -hmm. by a lot of medical professionals, uh, except for pharmacists, more or less, um, and kind of how the opiate crisis has creeped into our medical professionals as well. It's been an interesting um, rise and read in terms of how that's being managed by medical professionals and states and regulating those types of drugs. It's just been, you know, a fascinating uh, journey to watch. Absolutely. I mean, I think they, especially in the medical fields, they probably have access to and and they feel like they can manipulate certain things um, because of their knowledge base, as well as what they, again, perceive academic rigor to be. and, And so... There is. There's a lot more things that we just weren't seeing before. And once, unfortunately, they get addicted in their medical programs, it just extends into the profession. And so there are a lot of professional programs that are trying to do a lot more education, a lot more awareness, and and I think, quite frankly, trying to be a little bit stricter on conduct when found um, in that professional education so that it does not move forward into the profession. So knowing all of these trends that you've identified and kind of your relationships with your academic departments, how has all of this impacted or changed the way that you present things like orientation materials for conduct or your biannual alcohol reporting or your annual notice of your policies? So I will say um, institutionally that that has been an evolving process on a regular basis because of when I came in last year, um, I didn't have the opportunity to participate in some of the orientations, especially for our graduate and professional programs. Uh, They actually start over the summer, which is a little different of a model, but this year it's been one of of a little bit more of an expanding role and really making sure that students are aware that in addition to their professional expectations, there's this kind of universal expectation. Um, I also try to know the audience when I'm making those presentations. Um, 
are the expectations the same for all of our students? Sure. But how we have the conversation with undergrads that are walking in the door for the first time and graduate students that think that they've gone through this process before and don't need the information, that the way the message is delivered does change. Absolutely. Um, and do I talk a little bit more to our graduate students as experienced students? Absolutely. Do I just like to point out some maybe nuances um, or some of the things that they should really pay attention to? Yes. And I try to do that more and more because I understand that they are very much kind of hyper-focused. We're building in some new and different both reminders and, and kind of how the information gets out. Um, we've been really fortunate. Again, this year was a little bit of a change, but we're moving back to the model where um, for all of our graduate programs, the student handbook is actually incorporated in one bigger publication with their academic and professionalism requirements. And those are specific publications to each program. And so that's a great way that when they walk in the door, they're kind of told to hear all of your policies and procedures as opposed to having to go to multiple different places to find all the rules. Um, and so while this year was a little bit of an anomaly, we're trying to get back to that model um, so that students have all of the information that they need in one place. And I think that's sometimes where graduate students can get tripped up if one conduct office is responsible for everything, but that's not incorporated into what they're told their expectations are. Those are some of the things that we try to do um, in this building of a, we call it the one NSU model, um, where all students have both the same expectations as well as the same levels of support and, and resources across the university. Well, Alexis, you've shared a wealth of information today on working with graduate and professional programs. Are there any thoughts that you'd like to share that we didn't get to? I think the only thing um, that I would like to share is I know, um, again, having been on the other side, that the automatic or almost the default response is a, is a little bit of a defensive one of this is our community and, and we know what's best. And I, I think that comes from a lot of different areas um, and for a lot of different reasons. But I, I, I hope that conduct officers kind of across take also the opportunity to continue to reach out and, if nothing else, position themselves as a resource because I can guarantee there will be a moment where something happens and we all in higher ed like to call on each other um, and just kind of pick each other's brains um, to see how would you handle this or what do you think about this or how should I do this? And so creating that opportunity to be that resource is one of the most wonderful ways to really connect with other administrators and other professional programs and could really lead to a long-term great working relationship. So Basically, don't be intimidated by either the no or not right now response. Just be like, I'm here if you need me, if we need to talk through something. Or conversely, say, I'd love to pick your brain about this and, and start the conversation off that way. I think that's an excellent advice. Uh, Alexis, what are you reading right now? Um, I 
I'm not going to lie. Uh, I, so I just finished, uh, as we talked about a little bit, my graduate, uh, my doctoral degree in May. So I took a little bit of time off from anything kind of um, heavy. Uh, I've been doing, and this is probably not the best answer, so I apologize, but I am, I'm doing a lot of just kind of fun blog reading, um, not really anything either serious or work-related, just a little bit of fun to just keep my mind free and open. Um, I also, on my time off, I really love uh, both photography and kind of visual arts, and so I do a lot of kind of searching for great editorial pictures and, and art um, and just it kind of opens my mind. Um, so I, I took a little bit of break from, from the reading piece uh, just because after three intense years of, of reading a lot with work, I thought of uh, just a different, using a different side of my brain for a little bit and um, really trying to focus on art, actually street art, uh, both defines areas and um, really provides a, a great way to, to think about society, culture, um, and, and what it tries to impress upon the viewer. I love asking that question because we always learn something new um, <laughs> about about the guests, especially about kind of who you are as a human being outside of being a conduct officer. Uh, is there a particular uh, street art blogger that you would like to recommend? Um, so there is one. Um, she's, a, she's a colleague actually uh, in the New York City area. Um, she works under um, a kind of screen name of um, Finding NYC. Um, she kind of tours around all the New York boroughs um, looking for different kind of street art. Um, and she, she takes some amazing pictures. Fantastic. Well, Alexis, if anyone wants to follow up with you after the podcast airs, how can they reach you? So the best way to reach me um, as Probably the best way to reach many of us is at work. Uh, so email is fantastic at my Nova account, amartinez1 at nova.edu. And that's, you know, I, I think that's pretty common of most of us that we're addicted to our email. So if, by all means, if anyone would like to reach out, I'd love to hear Thank you so much, Alexis. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can tweet us at ASCA Podcast. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can always email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Alexis, for sharing your viewpoint today. Thank you so much. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Nicole Garcia-Diaz and Jeff Bates. Nicole and Jeff served as the 2017 ASCA Presidential Graduate Student Interns, and they'll be talking to us about the needs of graduate students in student conduct. So if you're currently mentoring a graduate student, hoping to bring them into the field, this will be a great episode for you. We hope you come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. 
If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com. 